done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. So we've been working our way through the, the Gospel of Mark. Just the timing of it has to do with a year and a half into it. Now we are, are coming to uh, the end. And we're going to scoot right along in such a way that we finish Easter morning by Mark 16 with the resurrection. Before I actually read from our text this morning, I want to tell you of an experience I had with my five-year-old son just this past week. For some reason or another, I'm not sure what stirred into him. Maybe he heard something. Um, but he has begun to be interested in playing chess. Now, every single one of my kids has gone through this phase, right? They're interested in playing chess. And so I, I teach them a, a thing or two about it. I, um, I'm not a great chess player, but I think I'm a good chess player. Um, I like playing chess. I love playing chess. And uh, I hope that my kids would love to play chess with me. So far, with four of them, it's not happened. Okay, so uh, I'm trying a different strategy with David. You'll, you'll, you'll pick it up. But anyway, I taught him the, how, the names of the pieces. I taught him where the pieces set up. I taught him how they moved. And the object of the game is to get the king. And um, Here's my strategy with David. We played two games. I think it was Friday that he came to me. We played two games on Friday and he beat me. He beat me twice. Unbelievable. I don't, I, I, you know, he's just, he's just really, really good. And um, then I think he's got this bug about how, how fun it is to win. And uh, so Saturday morning, I'm on the treadmill exercising and David comes uh, into our bedroom where our treadmill is. And he said, Dad, can we play chess again? And I'm, you know, I'm walking along and watching my video and I said, okay, David, when I'm done exercising, and he said, when's that going to be? I said, about half an hour or so. Oh. And so he walks out again, comes back in about five minutes or so. He said, dad, are you done yet? And I'm still walking along. I said, no, David, how long is it going to be? Well, about half an hour. Now, David has no concept of time. So to him, a half an hour just means like a long time. And so he went disgruntled and finally he gave me those five-year-old doggy eyes, you know, that said, Dad, can we please play chess? Now, I'm thinking, like, I need, I, I want to catch a kid, one of my children, who will play chess with me. So I, I sacrificed, I cut my, my uh, exercise short, and I said, David, I'm going to take the fastest shower that I've ever taken before, and I'll get down. And so we played again, and you know what we played on Saturday morning? Kids, you know who won? David won. And so I keep telling him he's, he's pretty good, and... Uh, Keep, keep telling him, that, hey, let's, let's keep doing this. But pretty soon, I know at some point, he's going to deal with the reality of Proverbs 16.18. Who knows what Proverbs 16.18 says? Man, you ought to know this verse. Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And uh, if we continue our strategy with this, you know, David might peter out like next week, and that's okay. But it's not because he hasn't won, okay? It's not because he got some interest. But if we keep going on this strategy, he's going to beat me lots of times, thinking he's a pretty good chess player, even bragging to others how good he is, and his pride will rise. But someday, he's going to realize that Dad's a lot better than he thought he was. And in that day, his pride will come to destruction. He is going to fall. Well... Proverbs 16:18 is a good illustration of our text this morning. We're going to see these disciples proud and we're going to see them fall. We are going to see them stumble. In fact, I want you to look for those two things as I read this text this morning and then look for how Jesus is different. Proverbs, or Mark chapter 14, we're starting in verse 27. 
I'm going through 52. I have a lot of work to do. We're just going to deal with this. I think it'll be helpful for us. And Jesus said to him, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. And they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep and watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And And he was saying, this is his prayer. He said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed the same words. And I'll just insert here. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In verse 40, and again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Jesus immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following with him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's a verse for little boys who like that verse. Did you see their pride? Did you see their stumbling? And you see Jesus who's totally different than the disciples? So really the lesson we have this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 10.12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And though Jesus warned these disciples of the danger that was before them, they were sure that they could stand. And what happened? They fell, each and every one of them. And perhaps even you're here this morning thinking, well, I will never fall. I will never fall away from following my Lord. 
I mean, my commitment is strong and secure. I will never do that. Well, I just say, this is for you if you're so confident you never will fall away like they did. Because it's the point of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. My first point comes right from verses 27 to verse 31. Take heed. Take heed. In these verses, we see Jesus encountering His disciples and telling them that they will fall away from following Him. Look again in verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and he and the sheep shall be scattered. Literally here, this word translated fall away is the Greek word skandalizo, which we get the English word scandal. It's a, it's a scandal. Literally, it means to stumble. It means to trip and to fall down. Now, in this context, it doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. Okay, When I talk about falling, I'm not talking about falling away from the faith. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. These are people who stumble because these disciples will later even be restored. Those who are righteous and fall down will get up. As Proverbs 24.16 says, A righteous man falls down seven times and rises again. And we see that with the disciples, that they did rise again and they changed the world. Jesus did restore them back to ministry again. But at this point, Jesus said, you're going to abandon me. You are not going to remain faithful. Now, on several occasions, Jesus had told his disciples about his upcoming death. We, we looked at those last week. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. Also somewhere in chapter 9 as well. Right? It's four times he tells them about how he predicted his death. And my guess is those are only times recorded to us in, in Mark's Gospel. My guess is he told them more times than that, I'm going to die. It's only Mark recorded it for us four times. But it, somehow it never quite sunk in. These disciples heard at the Last Supper. Remember that? That one of you is going to betray me. Mark chapter 14, we looked at this last week. And when they heard that one was going to betray them, verse 19, they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. And Jesus had 12 conversations that evening with the disciples. They said, surely not I. So confident were they. None of them could fathom betraying Jesus. They all thought they could stand. But now here, none of them, they hear for the first time that none of them would even remain faithful to the Lord. One would betray them, but the other eleven would fall away and disperse. Literally here, they would be scattered. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. When Jesus would be crucified, His disciples would be nowhere to be seen. In the hour of His greatest need, they all would fall. And certainly, it's difficult for them to believe. That here was Jesus, the one that they'd followed, the one who even uh, Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. You're everything. What? Where else can we go? And yet, away they went. And we see Peter's response here in verse 29. Typical Peter, just the impetuous one. The one, the one who said, verse 29, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. He said, surely not I, yet I will not. I'm not going to fall away. There's no way I'm going to betray you, Jesus. There's no way I'm going to fail to be faithful to you. But Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. 
when he said to him, verse 30, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me. Now, it is evening when he said this. The sun has been set and roosters crow before the sun rises just to announce the coming of the day. So it's just going to be, whatever, ten hours away. It's going to be very soon that uh, this denial is going to take place. And still clueless of what Jesus said, Peter again, boldly, even if I have to die with you, verse 31, I will not deny you. He just saying, no, I'm, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Why did he mention death? Because Jesus had mentioned to him so much that he's going to die in Jerusalem. And, and he knew what was, was going up. And he said, you're going to die. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. Now we can admire his zeal and his boldness, his willingness to be a martyr. Yet sadly... The very thing he said he would do, he didn't do. And the very thing Jesus said that he would do, he, he did. Rather than standing firm, Peter wilted in his day of trial like a flower milt, wilts in the sun, the heat of the day. Well, we get to chapter 14 at the end next week. We'll see how exactly what Jesus predicted came to pass. But Peter wasn't the only one who said, I'm willing to die with you. Look what it says, the very last phrase in verse 31, and they all were saying the same thing. Each and every one of them were saying, yes, yes, me too, even if I die with you, I, I, I will not deny you. They, they all were saying that. Do you see the pride? Do you see the arrogance that says, yes, I'm going to stand. I'm going to be there. John said it, and Matthew said it. And Thaddeus said it, and Bartholomew said it, and Thomas said it, and Andrew said it, and James said it. They all were willing to go with Jesus to the death. And, and on their defense, this was no, hand, no um, group of half-hearted followers. These were disciples who had left everything, sold out to follow Jesus. And here it's expressed in their mind, we will be faithful until the end. And yet we see in verse 50, prelude to what's coming. And they all left him and fled. Take heed. Anyone who thinks they stand, lest you fall. Now, their flight may have surprised the disciples, right? But it didn't surprise Jesus. He knew this would take place. First of all, his foreknowledge. I think Jesus knew, right, being the God-man in the flesh, that he, they would deny him. But there's also a way he knew that they would deny him. I mean, look, look at what Jesus says here again in verse 27. You will all fall away because here's the reason why I know that you're going to fall away. is because I've been reading Zechariah. And I know that in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Well, I'm the shepherd that Zechariah is talking about, the chief shepherd. And when you strike me, the sheep are scattering. So I know from the scriptures that the sheep will scatter. I know that all of you will become unfaithful to me. And Zechariah 13, verse 7 is a prophecy given in the Old Testament that describes how the true shepherd is, is struck down. As a result, they, they all go astray. The next few verses in Zechariah, if you'd read them, you can do this for homework. Don't read them now, but you can read them later. It speaks about how, how two-thirds of Israel will be cut off and perish. But yet God is going to restore a third of them as they are refined, as silver is refined and tested, as gold is tested. And what happened is, is the disciples went away. They're being refined and they're being tested. And they came back purer than ever. They changed the world, as I said. Well, there's going to become a point where Jesus restores them. And he gives a hint. He says, verse 28, After I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I'm going to lead you to Galilee. And there, of course, we know that he restored them to ministry again. He spent 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. 
The Holy, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you when I leave. Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon them soon afterwards on the day of Pentecost. Peter's restored to ministry. They all were. And then they began proclaiming Jesus and preaching Him and preaching repentance. And they did greater good later after they were refined. But right now they're too proud. Right now they're too arrogant. And I just say this. They would be restored in the future. There's hope for you, right? When you fall, get up. And, and when there's something you fail the Lord in, repent of that and get up and seek to follow after Him. How many times you promised the Lord something that you would do and then later regretted it? I, I just know I'll, there's many things I've pledged the Lord that I would do that I failed to do. God, I will be bolder in evangelism than ever before, and yet when opportunity to speak, I, I cowered. My prayer life, God, I'm going to really pray. I'm just going to be going to pray like Jesus, right? Sweating drops of blood, just fervent prayer, and yet I'm cold in my prayers. Right? Maybe I'm going to conquer this sin, and maybe that sin wasn't conquered. Maybe I'm going to control my mouth, God. I didn't control my mouth. And just, but what does a righteous man do? The righteous man turns, repents of that, and, and follows after the ways of God. And maybe you can relate to that well. Maybe you've made some kind of promise to God. Maybe you've made some kind of bold promise to God, but have fallen short in the hour of testing. Maybe today finds you in a place of desertion. We've rebelled against the Lord in some way. I just say, come back. Come back. There is hope in this passage, even though it is, right? Take heed lest you fall. It is. If you fall, there is hope. Well, let's look at my second point. First point, take heed. Second point, watch and pray. Watch and pray. That's what Jesus tells His disciples to do. Verse 32, we find Him coming to a place called Gethsemane, which means oil press. It's the place they pressed oils. And what a great picture of what's going to happen to Jesus. He's just ground down. He gets pressed and squeezed. Gethsemane was a shady spot along the western slope of the Mount of Olives. So picture Jerusalem here. Right, um, and then you go down the Kidron Valley, and then you go up the Kindred Valley, and there it is, kind of right there, kind of overseeing. You, you can see Jerusalem right there. The Kidron Valley is not very big; it takes me 15 minutes to walk all across the valley. But but there was a shady spot where Jesus would often retire with his disciples. John 18 verse 2 says that Jesus would arrive there. He arrived in Gethsemane. He's accomplished. He's accompanied by 11 of his disciples. At this point, Judas had gone out, finding a time to betray him. And he says to eight of them, he says, okay, you guys sit right here until I've prayed. And he goes on. And to the three, he says, right, verse 32, he talked about, uh, um, verse 30, I'm sorry, what it is, verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. So we put the eight over here. And then he comes to Peter and James and John, his inner circle, and they see him very distressed. Here was the man who was a rock, who was never afraid of the Pharisees, never afraid, stood up, and all of a sudden he begins wilting. And, and they should have been alarmed. That should have been reason for them to take heed and say something's different when Jesus becomes so distressed like this. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Uh, he, he had the, the crucifixion on his mind and, and it was beginning to sink deep. He, he knew he was destined to die and he knew clearly what his future held for him. And I think uh, he's just thinking about the reality of what's taking place. You know, in my life, and I'm sure in your life as well, if you've got some difficult circumstance coming up, um, 
some, some date you've got, some meeting that you have, some conversation that you have. So, you know, if it's a year away, it's like, I'm concerned about it, but not really concerned. If it's a month away, there's a little bit more concern. When it's a week away, when, it, when it's tomorrow, you may not be able to sleep that night. And when it comes upon the few hours coming up, you get more and more nervous. and after, You know what I'm talking about? Butterflies in your stomach. That's what's happening with Jesus. It is getting close. He knew full well that Jesus would betray him. He knew full well what everything was going to bring. And he said, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. I, I am deeply grieved. He gave some counsel here to these disciples. He said, keep here and watch. And I think the mere fact that, as Luke says, he's a doctor, he's concerned about these things, that his sweat became like blood, um, that should have concerned. And, you know, even if you see someone who's sick and distressed, at least you'll go over and tend to them. Or, you know, someone shows some physical distress, you're going to be attentive to them and see if they're okay. Maybe they just even watch Jesus. He's still going to breathe. Is he going to die right here? Is this what he's talking about? Dying in Jerusalem? Just going to keel over of a heart attack right now? Is he... At least they could have... Um, Watched and prayed is what Jesus told them to do because that's the same thing He was going to do. He said, I need to keep watch and I need to pray. And so we read there in verse 35, He went a little while beyond them, fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible that this hour might pass from Him. Verse 36, of course, we see what He prayed. He prayed, Abba, Father, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8, we know that it was loud crying and loud tears. So better to read this, Abba! Father! And those are two words the same. Abba is like Daddy. And Father is more like Father. Daddy! Father! He said, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Some people say, well, how, how do they know what Jesus prayed? Because he wasn't with anybody. He was alone. Well, I think he was praying loud enough that he could be heard. And what he's talking about, about removing this cup, he's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. The Old Testament frequently uses the, the cup meaning wrath for a symbol, like Psalm 75, verse 8. A cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. It's the cup of wrath. He's talking about God. Remove this cup of wrath from me. So I'm not sure it was so much the physical death that Jesus was dreading as much as it was the cup of God's wrath that came upon him. And think about the, the wrath that came. I want to couch it like this. Every, from time to time, there's a, there's a mass murderer that um, you know hits the news. I mean, every week, you know, there's some new kind of mass murders killed a bunch of people, and um, sentence comes down. And uh, maybe in a particular state, there's no death penalty. And so, what do people get? These, these mass murderers have to pay four life sentences for killing these four people. Okay. Now, I've never understood a life sentence before. It's like if they die and raise, and die and raise, and die and raise, and die and raise five times. Fifth time, they've already paid the four, then they can go free? Is, is that what? I don't know what it means. I mean, it's very, they're going to spend the rest of their life in jail, but they can't, how are they going to spend, it just doesn't make sense. But when Jesus suffered on the death, he suffered death for all who would believe. He had the sentence of death of multiple life sentences. 
Now, we don't know how many life sentences he paid. Currently in the world, about two billion professing Christians. Okay? Um, many of those are deceived, right? Jesus says many are on the false path, but the few are there who truly know me. So, there's a minority of those two billion who are saved. But, there have been true Christians throughout all the ages. So, how many Christians are going to be in heaven? Well, it's a multitude which no one can count. And uh, a billion is pretty high. David is. David can count up to what? He says a hundred and... David can count up to 111 is what he can count up to. He said, Dad, how high can you count? <laughs> I, said, I think I can count pretty high, David, but I'm not going to because if I spend the rest of my life counting, I'll just, I'll just kind of keep going. But there's the multitude which no one can count. And, and how high is that can I cannot count to? Millions, billions, we have no idea. I, but I'm just saying that suppose 100 million is the number. Okay? Jesus suffered 100 million life sentences upon the cross. Or he experienced a billion life sentences upon the cross. And that was God's wrath being poured out for the sin that you and I committed. It was poured on Jesus. The sin you will commit tomorrow, the sin you committed yesterday, was poured out on Jesus. And he got the punishment that you deserved. I mean, that's great news for us, but it's bad news for Jesus who's going to bear this wrath. And it caused him much anxiety in his humanness. He was looking for a way out. He knew there was no way but the cross, but so distressed he was and in such incredible suffering that he pleaded the Father for another way. He said, maybe there's something else missing. Maybe he didn't quite see it. Maybe he didn't have to go through this. And so you need to catch what Jesus is saying here. I've always been a marvel by this. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Right? Let, let's do it some other way, not going to the cross. But Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. He said several times you've got to go to the cross. Catch this. He's praying the impossible to God. He knew that that would never, could never be. But so distressed was he. He just prayed far, a far out prayer. And then he resigned himself to the Lord. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's really Jesus practicing what he taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, let your will be done. Let, I'm, I'm willing to, to take this cross. And, and I say this, it's not what I will, but you will. It gives great application to us. So when you have difficulties in your life, and there's some things which you just see it's a total impasse in, in your life. You don't know how it's going to help. You don't know how it's going to be accomplished. And there's some family member. Maybe there's some financial situation. Maybe there's some relationship problem. Maybe there's some uh, whatever. And you say, God, I have no idea. I, I just say, shoot for the stars. Pray for the impossible. Pray for the miracle. Pray for God to change the heart. And then say, yet not as I will, but as you will. Even it's okay. Pray for things which you know is probably not even true. It's okay. That's what Jesus did. He entrusts himself, though, to God, which you've got to balance those prayers off. Don't say, well, I believe it, therefore it's going to happen. Just say, God, I believe, I trust. Is there any other way? Please. And then say, not as I will, but as you will. I mean, that's why Jesus did. He prayed that same thing. And by the way, I'll just say, Jesus, when he said, not what I will, but what you will, he, he didn't reluctantly embrace that. It's not as if he went to the cross begrudgingly. Like, all right, all right, I'll have to do it. He, 
He joyfully did it. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus Christ willingly suffered the shame of the cross because he's convinced of the joy that was to follow. And so likewise, I just say to you, pray these things that, that are impossible, that are problems in your life and, and pray those out there. And but yet say, yet not what I will, but it's you will and walk happily through however God determines to answer your prayers or not. That's what Jesus did for the joy set before him. And not so much because those things are going to be wonderful, but they might, as James says, consider all joy when you encounter trials because they're going to produce in you a steadfastness and endurance of hope. But but also because the end, you know, that in God's will you're going to be far happier than out of God's will any day. So trust the goodness of God. Here's Jesus, the dark night of his soul, praying this way. And you may very well face a similar crisis. I just encourage you to just throw yourself upon God who can sustain you. Now, that's what Martin Luther did. Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer, was summoned before Charles, the Holy Roman Empire emperor, Accused of heresy, which brought forth a, a sentence of death. April 17, 1521, he was asked to repent of his writings. They put all his writings out there that he did. says, are you going to repent? And uh, on that day, Luther, you remember what happened on that day? They put all these things out said, Luther, will you repent? Who knows what he did? He failed to stand. He said, I'm but a mere monk. I'm so lowly. Give me one day. Give me one day to think about it. And I said, okay, you can come back. So it's not a total. He didn't cave totally. He just caved only halfway. But, but he then went to his room and wrote this prayer. Sometimes been called Luther's Gethsemane. Listen to his prayer. Listen to his passion. He writes, Oh God, Almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold, how its mouth opens to swallow me up and how small is my faith in Thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. By the way, as I read this, look, Martin Luther's not saying, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to boldly stand against all the Holy Roman Empire. And what does he say? He says, God, I'm so weak. I'm so helpless. I need Your help. And that's what I encourage you to do. Don't, take, don't say, hey, I'm going to stand strong. Say, you know what, God, I'm weak and I need your help. Power is perfected in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. Well, here, listen to what Luther says. If I'm to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The knell is struck. Sentence has gone forth. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, thou, my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldst... Do this by thine almighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine and it is righteous and everlasting. O Lord, help me. O faithful and unchanging God, I lean not upon man. It were vain. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou not no longer living? Nay, canst thou not die? Thou dost but hide thyself. Thou hast chosen for me this work. I know it. Therefore, God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. Lord, where art thou? 
My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold, me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy, it is thine own, and I will not let thee go, no, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body which is the work of thine hand should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me. My soul belongs to thee and I will abide with thee forever. Amen. O oh God, send help. Amen. It's kind of a flavor of what was written down in that day when he was praying that way. Today, like Martin Luther, he's not bold. He's saying, I'm weak. God, I need your help. It's your cause. And the very next day, God was faithful and strengthened Martin Luther. He declared those famous words to those who have the power to kill him. Unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captured to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And he stood firm and God protected him. Somehow he got out of there safe and continued to spread the Reformation. And we are here today in its shadows. And I just say this, in your greatest hour of need, be like Jesus and be like Martin Luther cried out to the Lord for help and he will strengthen you to accomplish all of his desires despite the difficulties that lie in the way. But what Jesus did, what Martin Luther did, was exactly what the disciples should have done and they didn't do. And instead, and this is very humorous, verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping. Jesus away shouting, Lord, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he's screaming out, and these disciples see that show for a little bit, and then... Now, to their defense, it's probably whatever, midnight, maybe it's one in the morning, I don't know what time it is, it's late at night, they're tired, they've had an exhausting day. Some of them have been up uh, preparing the Passover, they ate the Passover meal, their stomachs are full, they're... Whatever, Jesus, you go on your thing. Jesus found them sleeping. And Jesus had said to them in verse 34, keep watch. They were watchmen failing in the duty who had fallen asleep. And so Peter, Jesus comes and speaks with Peter, though in Matthew's Gospel, this is essentially coming to everybody. He says this, Simon, why are you asleep? It's a rebuke. Why are you asleep? He said, could you not keep watching for one hour? Can't you do it? I just asked you. So it says he was away praying for an hour. So great was the distress. And then he warns him. He says, keep watching and praying. Right? Keep watching, keep praying that you may not come into temptation. Then he gives an excuse. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know your flesh is weak. I know your spirit is willing, but, but pray that you may not fall into these things. And Jesus said, listen, I've been there gone for an hour. It's not very long. You should have been able to stay for a week. But I know your frailty. I know you're weak. I know you're but dust. And here, this will help you. Pray to God that you'll be vigilant. And pray to God that He'd keep you awake. Pray to God to watch in this hour. So the big question comes this. Why were they sleeping? Why were they sleeping? Well, i got a couple reasons. I think one is they were clueless. It's really the big reason. First of all, you can say they're tired, but yeah. But they were clueless. They didn't realize the urgency of the situation. Jesus did, and they didn't. Okay, I, I, I can relate. Yesterday evening, Ivana had a date. 
and went down to DeKalb and watched, listened to the Kishwaukee Symphony Orchestra playing three pieces. All right? they, they, paid, they played Hayden, Haydn's, Haydn's 44th Symphony in E minor. I didn't know anything about Haydn before I went, but Yvonne knew everything about Haydn. But I, I go to concerts because I love my wife. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Brahms Violin Concerto. Now that I was impressed by the Violin Concerto. There was a um, a 16-year-old junior from Newture High School who won some kind of award, and she played for 40 minutes. I don't know how long it was. It was amazing. She was good. And then a Requiem by Gabriel Faure. Is that how you say that? A Requiem is like a funeral dirge. Okay. But the, the music was really, was really good, especially that violin concerto. But I must confess that there were times when I, I was getting a bit sleepy and my eyelids did close for just a little bit. Not a lot. I, now, it's been worse before, okay? Um, Avon, I got this code word for it, okay? It's whenever you're really tired and trying to stay awake and you start, you know, whatever, bound your teeth. I, I like to bite my tongue a little bit to kind of jolt me up or something like that or you write notes or whatever. Um, we say, you're really hurting. And I just say, Avon, I'm really hurting. <laughs> it just means like I'm struggling. I want to stay awake. And, and in fact, um, I, I love, Avon's kept some old notes when she was in college and she was sleeping only four hours a night, stuff like that. She'd be coming to church and she'd be taking notes and, and her notes would all of a sudden get big and sloppy. You say, yep, you were hurting right there. There, right on through there. <laughs> you can really tell. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Now, I know there's some of you who know what I'm talking about, okay? Because I get to see it each week. As you just, you're sitting there and you're, you're just, your eyelids are down like this. But you're listening. You're listening, okay? And uh, when I see that, to be boring, okay, is the worst sin a preacher can have. And so when you're, when you're going like this, you're saying, Steve, you're sinning, you're sinning. And so, so I just merely got to say something like this. Well, you know, the other day, the strange thing happened. I was out walking about, and all of a sudden, everyone, everyone pops up. So that's a lot of why illustration, that's why we, we bring that in there, which preachers do. But I, that's why we're talking about sleeping. So you know. But catch it. Have you ever seen me, when preaching a sermon, going, <laughs> What verse are we on again? <laughs> You ever see me do that? Why not? Here it is. Here's my phrase. I'm going to print it. I know the intensity of the moment. I know the intensity of the moment. I need to, I need to know what I'm going to say in my next sentence. I need to keep my, my train of, of thinking going. And I think the reason why you may be dozed is because you've, you don't have the intensity of the moment. Like, like one of the things Avon was talking to me about on the way home about um, she plays in orchestras sometimes and um, she says, I so much appreciate just kind of showing up two minutes before this thing's going to go, listening for, it's over two hours that we're there, or at least two and a half hours, listening to this wonderful thing and knowing that I didn't do anything but all the work that was put in there. That is that's just very satisfying just to kind of come and because she knows, she said, of all the practice it works and during the performance, the intense concentration that takes place. And that's what you told me last night. And so have you ever seen someone in the orchestra playing the clarinet going? <sighs> They'd be sunk. They'd be playing a bad note and everybody would know. No, they're, they're in the intensity of the moment. They, they know what's going on. And I think... 
This is exactly what happened with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus knew he was dying and he knew that this moment was very critical. It was zero problem to keep him awake. He did not have any problem, but the disciples didn't realize how intense and urgent the situation was. Jesus said, keep watch and pray. They're like, okay, whatever. But had they known everything, I think they would have been like Jesus and would clearly have stayed awake. Even though they're told he's soon to die, even though they're told he's going to be betrayed, even though they're told they're going to be scattered, it, for them, it, it, it wasn't so bad for them. Even though Peter himself told three times before the morning strikes, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. It didn't hit him. He didn't see the urgency of it. And I just say with you, maybe there are issues of sin in your life. You don't see the urgency of it. And you're just sleeping through your sin. And what Jesus is saying here to us is keep watch. There is a moment of intensity here. And yes, here they go. They failed to keep watch, right? Verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. He's finding them sleeping. They had no idea the intensity of the moment. Everything progressed the same way. Jesus is there praying the same words, the same thing. They've been told to watch and pray. They're back here watching and praying and actually they start snoozing again. And Jesus comes back and finds that their eyelids are heavy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Heavy eyelids. Our eyelids, how much they weigh? An ounce maybe? But sometimes they can be really heavy. And that was their problem. They didn't realize the intensity of the moment. So I say to you, realize it. Take heed. Watch and pray. The disciples failed miserably. They didn't take heed. They didn't watch and pray. And so it happened, as verse 41 says, a third time. All we can assume is that Jesus went away and prayed and they were here sleeping and they came back again. Are you still sleeping? Jesus said, it is enough. The hour has come. You're not going to get a fourth chance. You've only got three. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Take heed. Watch and pray. Finally, my third point, lest you fall. Jesus knew very well what was happening. Immediately after, verse 43 says, While he was still speaking, Judas One of the twelve came up and accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Jesus knew full well that they were coming. He anticipated their coming. He said, Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I think when he was praying, he was praying with one eye to God and one eye to the horizon to see when it is that Judas and his crowd would be coming. And I'm sure that he found them, he saw them from a long way off as they started coming nearer. And he said, okay, well, I've got whatever. T- they're starting to come down the Kid Run Valley and they're starting to come up. I've got whatever, 15 minutes left. 15 minutes left. And kind of when they're coming, he's seeing them, he's seeing them come across and he's still praying, he's still praying. And just as they're about there, that's when he came and talked to them in verses 41 and 42. The hour's come, the Son of Man is being betrayed. And as soon as he said that, immediately is what John sa- or Mark says right here, verse 43. Immediately, Judas was right there. What's amazing about Jesus, he was totally willing in this second. He didn't run. He saw him coming across the Kidron Valley. He could have run. He didn't resist either. Verse 44, look at how he's betrayed. Now he who was betraying him had given him a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him 
and seized him. You know, there was no resisting Jesus. Jesus didn't resist, in other words. The betrayer had come to betray him. Jesus knew full well what he was doing right then at that moment. And yet, as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, do not resist him who is evil, but overslaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Jesus was applying that very teaching. He just gave himself into their hands. In fact, if you read John's um, commentary on this, it really is interesting that they come to try to arrest him. And they said, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. He said, I am he. And they fell backwards. And, who are you looking for? Jesus said, and they said Jesus of Nazareth said, I'm he, and they fell backwards. Like Jesus had to say, hey guys, let's just get this thing under here. Here, arrest me, right? Bind me, take me. He almost had to totally do it. He, he, didn't, he didn't resist at all, at all, even though painful though it was. David spoke about how painful it is to be betrayed by a friend. He said in Psalm 55, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor it is the one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And David said this, and if an enemy betrays me or defeats me, that's okay. But what's really especially difficult is when it is my friend. We who used to have sweet fellowship together in the throng. When he goes away, I know he's for me, I know he loves me, but now he is betraying me in a great and terrible and awful way. That hurts, and it hurts really bad. And that's exactly what... Jesus experienced here with Judas. Matthew's account says that uh, Jesus called Judas friend. Friend, do what you have come for. (laughs) Just amazing how painful that is. And yet, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples to love their enemies. And he was doing that very same thing just right here, applying his own teaching. Now, you've got to picture what's happening. Judas said, okay, I'm going to go kiss this guy. And when Judas came and kissed him, you, you know how the Russians kiss each other? Right? Or the, the French maybe? They're, mwah, mwah. In fact, even sometimes I remember it was a Russian wedding and these two men, you know, lip-locked together. And I was like, whoa! <laughs> I'm glad I'm American. But anyway, right? Just, just picture, right? Two Russians coming together. Mwah, mwah! Hugo, Victor, mwah! How are you doing? And that was what Judas was doing to Jesus just making it totally clear which one was the one to get. And Jesus willingly went that way. This word to kiss is katafalao, to really kiss, really show affection. It's, a, it's what took place with Ephesian elders with Paul when Paul said, I'm never going to see you again. They repeatedly kissed him and embraced him and wept aloud. It's, it's what the prodigal father does, the prodigal son who returns. He just lavishes him with kisses and with hugs. It's what the forgiven woman who was forgiven much when she was weeping and wetting Jesus' feet with her hair was kissing and kissing and kissing His feet. That's what Judas did. Clear act of hypocrisy. He's saying, Rabbi! And yet Jesus was so reserved. He didn't run, didn't resist, didn't retaliate. There was retaliation. It wasn't Jesus, right? One, verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword. Right? His probably little sword, his makairos that he had. And he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but John tells us it was Peter who drew the sword and Malchus the slave, was the slave's name. And they, they tried, he, he went for the head and Malchus went like this and he only got his ear. And we find out in other Gospels that Jesus heals that. And he said, no, 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 this, this isn't what this is about. In, in Matthew's Gospel, even, he, 
he speaks about how, do you not think I could call 12 legions of angels and they could come and, and defeat? If I wanted to win, I could win. But that's not what this is about. This is about me going to the cross and Jesus did it willingly. Not resisting, not running, not retaliating, not fighting. And by the way, Jesus puts an example of what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is a peace-loving faith. Um, I, I think in this hostile political environment that we have today, we can lose that sometimes. As Muslims come more and more, maybe are more hostile and more angry and more revenge-oriented. Christianity is not. In fact, this is how the early Christians won the Roman Empire to make the Roman Empire the Holy Roman Empire. It was through peace and kindness. Philip Schaff, a great historian, said this, talking about how is it the early church went from being persecuted people because there are tremendous persecutions around the time of Nero and Diocletian and awful persecutions, the early centuries of the Christian church. How is it then that the Roman Empire turned into the Holy Roman Empire? Command that everybody be baptized. We're Christians now. How how is it over a period of about 300 years that did so? And and Schaff writes this, No merely human religion could have stood such an ordeal of fire for 300 years. The final victory of Christianity over Judaism and heathenism and the mightiest empire of the ancient world, a victory gained without physical force, but with moral power of patience and perseverance, of faith and love, is one of the sublimest spectacles in history and one of the strongest evidences of the divinity and indestructible life of our religion. It's just peace and patience. When being wronged, right? That's what Jesus, right? While suffering yet are no threats. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And we see him right here. He's not retaliating. He's not running, not resisting, not ranting, not raving. It's, it's not out of control. And Jesus, though, did convict these people in a gentle way. He said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? He said, I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. I'm... Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And again, the second time he referred to the Scriptures. First time was Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. This time, he doesn't say exactly which Scripture he's referring to, but... He's just talking about fulfilling the Scripture that you need to betray me unjustly. And so he might be thinking about Psalm 22, which he's going to quote on the cross here in a little bit. might be thinking about Psalm 69, about the many enemies coming against the Messiah. Maybe he's thinking about Psalm 88, talks about the desertion of friends. Maybe he's talking about Genesis 3.15, about the seed of the serpent must bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Maybe he's thinking about that. We don't know what he was thinking about that, but he just talked about how the Scriptures had to be fulfilled in this way. And Jesus was ready. Why was he ready? I believe he'd taken heed, he'd watched, and he'd prayed, and he was ready not to stand on his own power, but really to stand on the power of God working through him. Listen, if Jesus needed to pray, and Jesus needed to plead God, and Jesus needed to be strengthened by his Father, don't you think we need to do those things as well? His disciples, on the other hand, didn't take heed, didn't watch, didn't pray, and they fell. Verse 50 simply says this, and they all left him and fled. Poof, gone. Jesus had prophesied it. They had denied it. But sure enough, it comes to pass. Pride comes before the fall. Everything was filled right there. And then this very interesting account, 
Young boys, you can come back now. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free from the linen sheet and escaped naked. And this man was unnamed. Um, most people, though, most interpreters believe it was Mark. Who else would know about the, a young person who had gone after, pursued after, that he ran away naked? Um, most people wouldn't know about that. Mark knew the details. He just had a sheet. One, one commentator even talked about how maybe he just pulled sheets off his bed and kind of wrapped it around. He heard commotion, so he kind of went. But we do see there's some commending to this young boy, whoever this was. It's probably not the disciples because verse 50 says all the disciples left him and fled. But it was somebody who, even after all the disciples left and fled, was following after Jesus. He displayed some courage. And yet, here, catch this, I think this is the point of the verse. <laughs> Why is this in here? I think the point of the verse is he's more willing to run out into the night naked than to follow Jesus in the time of his distress. So desperate was he so that all his disciples all fell away. And so off Jesus went to an unjust trial and an unjust death so that God could forgive us. I just want to close with one last illustration. Turn in your Bibles to John 21. Just a few, three verses or so. Lest you despair, lest you find yourself as, oh, I've, I've not taken heed, I have fallen. Is there hope? And I say, yes, there is hope. Restoration is possible. In John chapter 21, Simon Peter is kind of fed up with his things and I'm going fishing. So we'll come with you as well. Just stop forgetting this Jesus thing. I'm going fishing. And then Jesus, he had an encounter with Jesus. We don't have time to go through all these things. But here it is. Jesus, Peter's being restored. Verse 15. Look at the love of our Savior. So, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he kept saying the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And there's just reinstating him into ministry. And I just say, you've got to realize how difficult this is. If someone betrays you, it's really hard to bring them back on your team. Because you're like, well, they betrayed me. Are they, are they still with me? Are they not? Well, where, where are they really? And, and maybe there's that doubt. Jesus says, I know you love me. Yes, go do and be my ambassador now. Be a shepherd. I'll be your chief shepherd. Is what Peter was told in 1 Peter chapter 5. And shepherd the sheep. And tend my lambs. And feed them because I know you love me. So just, just be encouraged that even though Peter fell, he came back and God used him to change the world. Let's pray. Father, these words are rich. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you might sink them deep into our souls. I, I, I pray for next week that you would God, stir us by just the unjust trial that took place late at night, not according to Robert's rules of order, God, but according to the whims of people who wanted to destroy a man and Peter's denials three times. And yet, Father, may we find hope. May we hope that we are weak like Peter and hope that You are, are loving like You are to restore us and help us. 
God, that we might serve you. Um, help us, O oh Lord, to be encouraged. I think as we think of the crucifixion, the passion account of Jesus, may it be a blessing to our souls these next several weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.